when we met, we were very happy together. I thought we did have a perfect marriage. Much of what we know about the Brodericks' married life comes from a series of interviews conducted in 1988, in the midst of their high-profile divorce. To the best of my recollection, Betty had kind of been shopping the story around. She was just desperate to tell her story. Paul Kruger was a reporter for the San Diego Reader, a weekly alternative newspaper. She ended up contacting my colleague, Jeanette DeWise. Jeanette talked to her, immediately thought this is a really interesting story. Between them, they interviewed both Brodericks. They met Betty in what she called the dump where she lived. He remembers it as a nice place, but stacked high with boxes of legal documents, almost a stage set for the horror story she unfurled for them. She was very believable. You know, she told this amazing story of how terrible Dan was and how what a good wife and mother she'd been. And she really sucked you into her uh, drama. They spoke with Dan in his downtown office. Well, then when you talk to Dan and you hear his side of the story and you read the documents, you see it's much more complicated. Their demeanor, Dan's and Betty's, could not have been more different. She was attractive. She was animated. He was very intelligent. He was very measured. He was very objective. He was as unemotional as Betty was emotional. Point by point, he would um, rebut, often in extremely persuasive and, I believe, truthful, you know, accurate ways, the things that Betty was saying. For years, Dan told the paper in rather clinical language, Betty had regularly, quote, expressed extreme unhappiness with me and my dedication to my work and my profession and my attitude toward her and our children. He admitted that he had been, quote, far from the kind of good, loving husband I could have been, but he didn't elaborate. As for the glow that Betty painted around the marriage before Dan left it, well, Betty, quote, glosses over a lot when she says we were both happy. She tells my children that we had a blissful, happy, healthy marriage until I went crazy when I was 40. That's just pure fiction. He didn't have any drama. He wouldn't call her a liar. He didn't say she was crazy. He didn't use any hyperbole. He would say something like, well, that's simply untrue. This is what happened. In the years after they separated, Betty did all the diva things that became a gift for the TV movie about the case and for Dan's brief against her. She smeared a Boston cream pie all over Dan's bedroom. She smashed windows and mirrors. She spray-painted walls black. She left smutty phone messages for him and his girlfriend. Each provocation brought another court order. At one point, Betty had nine hanging over her. The day the family house was sold, Betty rammed her Chevy Suburban into the front door of Dan's new house. Their younger daughter recalled that when Dan went out to see what happened, Betty whacked him over the head with a set of keys, and Dan knocked her to the ground. This time, Dan called the police. And in another of those made-for-TV set pieces, they took Betty away in a straitjacket for psychiatric observation. The more she got crazy on him, the more he acted like the lawyer that 
with the unruly client, you know. He just wouldn't put up with it, and he couldn't walk away from it either. So he was very controlling, and, you know, he was the kind of guy who was used to getting his way in the courtroom, and if she was going to get outrageous, he was going to do everything he could to methodically tamp her down. The reader's plan for a big 1988 cover story on this god-awful divorce got spiked after Dan's lawyer threatened an invasion of privacy suit on behalf of the children. Kruger and DeWise wrote a scaled-back piece the next year, but it wasn't a story that a reporter would forget, and Kruger didn't. I remember being in the classroom when President Kennedy was shot, and I remember being in the shower when the planes hit the trade towers on 9-11. And the third thing I remember, and will remember till the day I die, is hearing that Betty shot Dan. From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Pat Morrison, and this is It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. You better be watching. You better be watching in the dark. You better be watching. You better be watching on your guard. Betty Broderick was now, and against her wishes, an officially divorced woman. Whether she would remain a rich one was still up to the court. Dan had moved out of their house in 1985. They were divorced in 1986. Dan and Betty spent 1987 in legal wrestling matches over money and the kids, the kids and money. The calendar told her it was 1988, but the mirror... Who was the woman in the mirror if she was no longer Mrs. Dan Broderick? Who had she become? Disheveled Betty, bewildered and foul-mouthed Betty, buttonholing the ladies of La Jolla and pouring out her tale of rue and fury to them. What in the world, they worried, had happened to that other Betty Broderick, the stylish hostess and wife, the funny, generous friend and doting mother? How had it come to this? La Jolla is where Dan and Betty planted their dream, and for a time it flourished like the San Diego jewel flower. Dan, with his double-barreled Ivy League degrees, became an absolute legal machine, billing more hours than anyone else, working nights, working weekends, working in the den, or sitting in the backyard at home. He was beloved among his colleagues, and they kidded him about his early relentless gleaning for clients. Back when he left his business cards around town, with a dime taped to the back, the price of a payphone call back then. On a weekend guy's trip to a college football game, a friend I spoke with who asked not to be named shared a room with Dan. When the friend got back home, he opened his suitcase and found maybe 10 of Dan's business cards, each with a coin taped to the back, a joke about how the guys had joshed him for being, quote, such a huckster. When the Brodericks first got to La Jolla, Betty taught fifth grade at a private school until she found out, as many women did and still do, that paying someone else to take care of your kids costs more than you can earn yourself. Betty was someone who had talent, had education, 
uh, was a hard worker, had set up her life. That's attorney Jack Early. He's an Irvine criminal defense attorney who represented Betty in both murder trials. Betty was tried for murder twice. The first ended in a hung jury. Early's been in practice more than 40 years, and when it comes to murder cases, he's handled some doozies. More than 100 homicide cases, including death penalty cases, but nothing comes close to the Broderick case. And really, the cottage industry was set up was Dan Broderick. Uh, His law practice, that was who her identity was. She was involved in the courts, in the community, with the children. Even after Dan's big money started surging in, Betty ran an at-home daycare operation for her friend's kids at a dollar an hour. Not for the money, but because she loved it, and the kids loved her goofy pranks and madcap jokes. And why couldn't their moms be more like Mrs. Broderick? The grown-ups loved Dan Broderick, his fealty to all things Irish, his after-hours antics, that megawatt grin that looked like someone had switched on a light behind his face. It was a very different face from the mopey, detached one that was already beginning to show up in family photos. By 1986, Dan's medical malpractice work was grossing above a million dollars a year. The four kids went to private, prestigious Catholic schools. The youngest child was named after Dan's big-screen hero from Gone with the Wind, Rhett Butler. The house that Dan later bought for himself, the house he married his second wife in, the house he was murdered in, had a facade of white columns like Scarlett O'Hara's plantation house, Tara. In those flush years, the Broderick spent loads of money on holidays, cars, the house, and clothes. Oh, the closets of that five-bedroom house on Coral Reef Avenue. Dan's Armani suits, Betty's daytime ensembles from labels like Escada, and a four-figure evening gown from Bob Mackey. Betty called him Dapper Dan, and Dan's tongue-in-cheek nickname for himself was the Count du Monet, as in money. Earlier in their marriage, Dan and Betty went to a marriage retreat where they had to write letters to each other. Los Angeles Times writer Bella Stumbo quoted them at length in her book Until the Twelfth of Never. Dan wrote that he could not be truly happy until he was rich, and for Betty, it was not until they were a companionable couple. One of Dan's letters revealed that he was, quote, disappointed in his own shortcomings, like postponing being a good husband, a good father, until he reached this professional goal or that amount of money. Quote, I tell myself that I've got to earn a decent living, establish myself as a lawyer, acquire certain necessary possessions before I can indulge the luxury of being an attentive, thoughtful person. Betty, in turn, wrote about her shortcomings and insecurities in the third person. Quote, Always busy doing something, but never really does anything perfectly. She loves the kids, but feels trapped by them all the time. She wanted Dan to listen to her, but admitted that she herself was not a good listener. In years to come, the press called Betty a socialite, but truth be told, the Brodericks were still on the fringes of elite La Jolla society. A few times they're mentioned in society columns as others in the preview throng and also attended. After Dan moved out, Betty's mentions are mostly ladies' lunch benefits, or else solo among misters and missuses, husbands and wives. The last time she made the society news, before the crime news, was two months before the murders at a La Jolla block party with her 10-year-old son. You know, the image of Betty being a socialite, I think, was overplayed in this case. 
The major role that they've had as far as being the person of making Dan successful as a lawyer is being involved in the legal community, the balls, the functions, the charities that they would have. And truthfully, I think that if Betty was just allowed to live her life, she would have been most comfortable running a daycare center, coaching a soccer team, uh, being with the kids. I mean, that, I think, is the true Betty. It's a funny thing about the Mr. and Mrs. John Smith style that society pages favored. It's from the days when women's own names were supposed to appear in print only three times, when they were born, married, and died. Bed, wed, and dead is what they called it. But that made Mrs. a plug-and-play proposition. In Mr. and Mrs. John Smith, the Mrs. could be any wife, first, second, third, any wife at all. That was Betty's 1950s scream in a 1980s world. As younger women began to think that marriage wiped away their identities, Betty thought divorce obliterated hers. Quote, I wasn't Mrs. Anybody anymore. A lot of times what you see is the man becomes 50, 55 years old, he quits his job, he grows a beard, he gets long hair, he goes off on a sailboat. Uh, he wants to change his life. Dan Broderick loved the life Betty set up. He loved every part of it. So what he did is what Betty saw was everything of her life went on. The only thing is Linda Colquina was substituted for her. Of the myriad things that drove Betty frantic about Dan's new girlfriend, Linda Colquina, was that he took her to some of the same events that he and Betty had shared, like the USC Notre Dame Games and the San Diego County Bar Association's annual gala, the Blackstone Ball. It's named for the 18th century English jurist, Sir William Blackstone, who once famously wrote, The husband and wife are one person in law. The very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage into that of the husband. In 1984, Dan and Betty had been the couple at the ball. In 1986, it was Dan and Linda. And in November 1989, the Blackstone Ball went ahead with a heavy air of mourning, six days after Dan Broderick, the Bar Association's former president, and his new bride were murdered. Divorce is a hindsight tale that's always muddled up by two people telling two versions of one story. You know, Betty had her own lane as to what happened, and there was very many interesting social issues around her case, and she had a very hard time being able to take three steps back and look at the bigger picture. And I would guess some of it is because she was so much in the middle of it, but it made it, that made it very difficult. For all the discontent that went before, Betty dated the end of their marriage to a party in the spring of 1983. Dan caught sight of Linda Colquina, a 21-year-old receptionist in his office building, and said within Betty's earshot, isn't she beautiful? And that was my first clue that Linda Colquina existed. Had the Broderick simply busted up a 16-year-old marriage that had worn thin, it might not have been news at all. 
or like other people, they could have reached an accommodation, publicly a couple, privately apart, and toughed it out while the kids grew up. But like Princess Diana, Betty just knew there were three people in her marriage and now in her divorce. The San Diego Reader reporters asked Dan straight out about Linda Coquina, and here's what Paul Kruger remembers. My sense of the whole thing with Linda was that it didn't strike us at the time as being as foreboding as it was after. It didn't strike us at the time. No matter, Betty believed he had cheated on her, and thereafter, Dan, and by extension Linda, were the authors of her miseries. A psychologist who testified for the defense at Betty's first murder trial said that a woman who feels betrayed can turn into, quote, an uncapped volcano of pain who feels crazy that the very fabric of life is torn apart. Remember in episode one, we mentioned California's no-fault divorce law that passed the year the Brodericks were married? Before no-fault, Betty might have held the winning hand in a divorce. A woman who helped to support her husband through two Ivy League degrees, ran his house, raised his kids, only to have him leave her with another woman in the picture. Here's divorce attorney Daniel Jaffe. Prior to 1970, we had a fault system. So if you could establish fault in the divorce case, one party had to get more than 50% of the property. Cheating, cruelty, desertion, drunkenness. When Betty and Dan married, those were the grounds for divorce. TV audiences snooped into the juicy intimacies of other Americans' broken marriages with divorce court reenactments. No fault was meant to dispense with that sordid spectacle and make divorce swifter and cheaper. It required only insanity or irreconcilable differences to split up. I wondered what I was going to do for a living. I had been doing family law for six or seven years prior to that date, and if we can't prove fault and everything is divided 50-50, doing family law for six or seven years prior to that date, and if we can't prove fault and everything... Some women's groups hoped no fault would let women free themselves with dignity from bad marriages. As it turned out, no fault made it easier for men to walk out, too, legally guiltless and sometimes financially unburdened. As the L.A. Times warned in 1969, a husband could go into court with a plea for dissolution without telling the judge that the irreconcilable difference is his newfound love for his secretary. But there are experts in family law and economics who argue that no fault has accelerated what sociologists call the feminization of poverty. Here's Jack Early. The major role that they've had as far as being the person that keeps the family together, raises the children as support, just is not valued in the same way as the workplace is. And if they go into the workplace, they have to work twice as hard to get where a man of a lot less talent is. Some years after California's no-fault law, a Stanford sociologist studied its impact. She found that a year after divorce, an ex-wife's living standard fell by an average of 74%, while an ex-husband's went up by 42%. Public policy analysts are still trying to figure out how to get five decades' worth of faults out of the no-fault laws. Those issues are important now. They were important then. And that's the hard part that Betty could take a step back and realizes that 
Dan wasn't unique. He was powerful, but not unique. And a lot of the issues that were there were ones that confronted women on a daily basis. Heck, the law doesn't even call it divorce anymore, but dissolution of marriage, just ending a legal contract between parties. And that was right in Dan Broderick's wheelhouse. Betty would find to her stupefaction and fury that adultery no longer figured into a divorce. A large piece in Betty's repertoire of betrayal happened on Dan's 39th birthday. Betty went to his office to surprise him, but the surprise was on her. Dan and Linda had left early. For lunch and a deposition, he said, but Betty wasn't buying it. That's the night Betty went home and torched his wardrobe. Here's the Broderick's elder daughter testifying for the prosecution in her mother's murder trial. She went to the garage and he grabbed a can of gasoline and poured it all over him. And it was a huge pile of things. And then she lit it with gasoline and then she went and got black paint and poured it over all the ashes. And so began the nastiest divorce in San Diego history an ugly specimen of human misconduct long before the gunshots. The two began playing musical houses, rentals, repairs, moving, buying, selling, and the kids went between them like tennis balls. Visits and trips and sleepovers canceled, rescheduled, ignored. Betty finally took them to Dan's place, bag and baggage, and dumped them there to see how he liked being a single parent. Rebecca Lack was Linda's best friend at the time, and she remembers being told about the night the youngest Broderick was dropped off at Dan's new house. She pushed him out of her car, pushed his clothes and toys on top of him as he's crying, saying, I I don't want to live with Daddy. I want to live with you. And she drove off. But Betty overplayed her hand. Dan didn't take the bait, and he even got legal custody, though the little boys still longed to be with their mom. In the old days, Betty's mailbox had filled up with delightful things like invitations and catalogs. Soon, the invitations were going to Dan and Linda instead, and the catalogs enticed her with stuff she shouldn't be buying on credit cards that were maxed out. Betty said the mail also brought her anonymous envelopes filled with clipped-out ads for diet programs and wrinkle creams. Dan and Linda, she was convinced, were gaslighting her. And lastly, and mostly... The mail brought her legal documents admonishing her for her latest outrage. The exhausting cycle repeated itself. Something would set Betty off, and Dan's lawyer answered with contempt complaints, which set Betty off again, and the whole squalid business went into Groundhog Day mode. Betty was jailed twice, once briefly and another time for a week. For Betty, this persecution by legal paper was beyond frustrating. The more she tried to confront Dan to talk, and violated court orders to do so, the more Dan tried to keep his distance. As their younger daughter testified at the first murder trial, quote, he didn't want to talk to her, he didn't want to see her, he didn't want to hear her voice. You know, Betty had her story, and Betty was wrapped up in her story. Again, Jack Early. And that was part of the difficult part. There were parts of her case that that she just couldn't see how it would look from the outside. She was seeing it from the inside. Was Dan too hard on Betty or too easy? Even his closest friends disagreed. Brian Monahan told Bella Stumbo that Dan, quote, was determined to discipline her, control her, like you would an unruly child. Another friend, Ned Huntington, 
told the LA Times that because of the kids, Dan, quote, really didn't take the strong measures he could have taken. He didn't want the guilt of being punitive toward her, so he let her get away with a lot of atrocious acts. He just wouldn't punish her. During the divorce trial, the exasperated judge scolded Dan and told him not to file another complaint unless he was willing to have Betty put in jail. Yet around Halloween 1986, he wrote her this, explaining the fines he had docked from her monthly support check. Quote, I know your first impulse upon reading this letter will be a violent one. You have told the kids that if I withhold any money this month, you will kill me and see that not a brick is left standing in my house. You better think twice about that. If you make any attack on me or my property, you will never again get a red cent out of me without a court order. You better take a minute to think about the implications of that before you go on a rampage. At this point, you're probably wondering, where were Betty's friends, her family, someone who could stop her, help her? Her family was on the other side of the country, and her friends couldn't make sense of things anymore as her story got more convoluted and her attitude more stubborn and determined. Ann Dick, a woman who'd known Betty for a decade, said she began to think two things. One, that maybe Betty was right about Dan manipulating the legal system against her. And two, that Betty truly needed inpatient mental care. But without Betty's cooperation, the prospect of anyone taking on the burden of looking after her was just too daunting. The size of her divorce settlement was one way Betty could keep score in her battle with Dan. As far as she was concerned, the ex, Mrs. Broderick, should be able to live the lifestyle she had when she was one half of Mr. and Mrs. Broderick. Helen Picard, a La Jolla friend, found herself sitting across the courtroom from Betty, testifying at her murder trial. She worshipped money. It was her main goal in her life. She loved it. She's a very materialistic person. She always was. The numbers were all over the map, from $5,000 a month to Betty's wish for as much as $25,000 a month. A judge set the figure at $16,000 a month. Dan considered it too much. Betty thought it was not enough. That number, $16,000, would hang around Betty's neck like a police booking number. People were incredulous. What kind of woman couldn't manage on $16,000 a month? Take the money and run. And anyway, why would someone want to stay married to someone who didn't want to be married to her? Yeah, he cheated on her. Yeah, he went. He ran off with a young woman. Paul Kruger again. She got a good settlement, as ugly as it was. Why couldn't Betty just take the money and walk away from it like a lot of people do, be they men or women? Why weren't they both able to get on with their lives? What a tragedy. The court orders weren't stopping Betty from trespassing and leaving vulgar voicemail messages, so Dan started using the force of money, too. Fines to dock from her monthly check, $100 or $200 for each obscene message, and more for every trespass. One month, Betty's transgressions totted up to more than her whole support check. That's very uncommon for a divorce court to allow the person one side or the other to determine penalties by the court by holding the money back, uh, by holding the children back, putting them in charge. That would be very unusual. Betty probably didn't learn them from the comedian George Carlin, but she started using just about every one of Carlin's seven forbidden words, especially the ones of four letters. 
Just hearing Linda Colquina's voice on the answering machine at Dan's house provoked her to insults that Dan assiduously recorded. A judge finally told Dan to, quote, get the girlfriend off the machine. The voicemails did Betty no favors. She urged her children to attack Linda and defy their father, and she did it with a vulgar vocabulary that her kids would have had to be 17 years old to hear in a movie. In March of 1987, Dan sat in his house and taped a phone call between Betty and her elder son. Three-plus years later, it was played as evidence in Betty's murder trial. The boy was 11. He cried and pleaded with his mom to stop cussing and stop obsessing about money. Quote, We want to live with you, Mom, but you're making it harder for all of us. All you care about is your stupid money. You want everything. You want all the kids, all the money to get rid of Linda. It's not going to work, Mom. You've been mad long enough. No, said his mother. I haven't. Moreover, she told her son, quote, I didn't get a divorce. Daddy got a divorce. I'm still married. One pillar of Betty's account was that Dan Broderick had San Diego's legal system in his pocket. I've been forced, she kept insisting, into a legal system that Dan controls. So she went far afield from San Diego's legal orbit and found Daniel Jaffe. You're talking about my infamous San Diego case? He's a highly sought after, highly regarded Los Angeles divorce attorney. He gets a thank you in the credits of the 2019 Oscar-winning film Marriage Story, having represented director Noah Baumbach in his divorce. Jaffe met this new client at the Hotel del Coronado, the picturesque Victorian hotel near San Diego. She believed that her role was a wife and mother, and he could not unilaterally change her role just to being mother by terminating the marriage. Now, she was very angry. It's very complicated because uh, Danny Broderick was a doctor lawyer. He was uh, president of the San Diego Bar Association. So he was a very prominent individual. Betty was always concerned about his prominence. Jaffe was a match for any lawyer Dan could enlist, and had Betty kept him on, things could have turned out very differently. But Betty often ignored Jaffe's advice. It became a habit for her, dismissing the legal input she was paying for or doing without a lawyer altogether. And over the years, Betty had several. She really believed that the law was against her, that his uh, prominence in the uh, legal community was against her, and that she really felt helpless. That's how, on July 16, 1986, the Broderick divorce was decreed without her being there. Dan got custody of the kids. She had thought that by not showing up in court, by not having a lawyer, quote, I could get it put off until I did. The same thing happened when it came to selling the former family house. She agreed to sell it, wavered over the price, decided against it, and although Jaffe got Dan to give Betty a larger chunk of the sale price, she wouldn't sign the papers. How much would it take to get her to sell? As Dan quoted Betty saying, a million dollars wouldn't do it. So Dan got the legal order allowing him to sell the house on a few hours' notice without her consent. 
That's when she lost it and drove her Chevy SUV, the suburban mom-mobile with the load-em-up license plates, over to Dan's new neighborhood and into the front door of Dan's new house. Here's the elder daughter in court again. It hit the door, and it sounded like a chainsaw, and I ran out the back door. Later in court, she insisted that she'd, quote, just kind of bumped into it. The report from her 72-hour psychiatric observation was introduced at Betty's murder trial. It characterized her as possessing, quote, a glib social style with histrionic and immature demands for attention, a borderline personality, histrionic and narcissistic. Prosecution witnesses said much the same thing in her murder trial. A friend tried to persuade her to check into mental health treatment. Dan Jaffe, the divorce attorney, even suggested that a guardian be appointed to protect her financial interests, and he told Betty that she should get psychiatric help. Not then and not since has Betty publicly entertained the possibility that she was mentally deranged, not even considering it as her defense in the killings. Dan was the crazy one, and Dan and Linda were trying to drive her crazy, and anybody in her shoes would naturally act with the same righteous fury. He wanted me to kill myself so that he could go on living and just say, see, I told you all, she was just a nut. She was just crazy. What's mind-boggling is how two people could live together for 16 years and still know so little about what made the other tick, except when it came to pushing each other's buttons. The divorce trial was to decide custody and the financial settlement. Dispensing with a lawyer again, Betty conducted her own questioning and didn't do it so well. Here in front of her at last was Dan, Dan, who she'd spent five chaotic years trying to get to talk to her. Yet almost everything she wanted to ask about, infidelity, the kids, and even, shrewdly, how she could be responsible for bad investments Dan made without her knowledge, the judge stopped her, irrelevant or, under no fault, inadmissible. In January 1989, she heard the judge's ruling with incredulous ears. The monthly checks would continue for a while, but in legalese, wife must ultimately take some responsibility for her own support. And the sum total Dan owed his ex, out of everything, minus her share of loans and bad investments and other complex debits and her own large and sometimes absurd retail therapy expenditures, was $26,606. Divided by 16 years of marriage, or divided by nine pregnancies, or by business dinner parties, or marital screws, however you wanted to work it out, Betty absolutely blazed with the injustice of it. Here's her defense attorney, Jack Early. There was a great disparity there. So it was one of the questions we asked jurors is, if you went in with your neighbor, bought a lottery ticket, each put a dollar in, and you won $100 million, and your neighbor came to you and said, you know, I'm going to give you a million dollars, that's a lot of money, would you be happy? Some jurors uh, would say, yeah, that wouldn't bother them. Most jurors would laugh and say, of course not. You know, we put it in half. I deserved what, uh, what I was entitled to. Betty had friends who'd been dumped. They'd gone through divorces, come out the other end with bank balances fearfully diminished, but still with a life, with their kids, maybe with a job, maybe even with another man to love. Here's reporter Paul Kruger. 
the whole thing that we came to realize, and this sort of goes towards a really basic part of Betty's personality, is why can't she just get on with her life? You know, what was it about Betty that made it impossible for her to move on? It's the question everyone who hears about this case asks. Why? Here's a glimpse of the answer. It's from a letter Betty wrote to a court psychologist. It was supposed to be about the custody of the kids, but wound up in a third-person shriek against the system with herself as a defiant martyr. Quote, Why won't she just step into the gas chamber and shut her mouth like all the other women before her? Because it's wrong. Betty just didn't have it in her to change. Two abortions and a divorce and even, half-heartedly, one younger boyfriend later, she was still, in her mind, the nice Catholic wife, the betrayed Catholic wife. The priest said for better or for worse, and it had turned out to be worse. He'd said until death did them part, and now that's what it would be, too. Looking back, a lawyer friend of Dan's, who asked not to be named, told me he had remembered a piece of Catholic doctrine called Invincible Ignorance. It refers to people who aren't believers because they've never learned about the faith. Betty's version of Invincible Ignorance, he'd come to think, was her impenetrable certainty. Quote, There's no way you're ever going to persuade her that she wasn't entitled to kill Dan and Linda. April 1969 is when Dan and Betty got married. April 1989 is when Dan and Linda got married in the front yard of the brick house Linda had been sharing with him. About a month before the wedding, Betty went to their house again, as she was not supposed to, and this time she stole the wedding guest list. Linda Colkina, the bride-to-be, had had it. She went to Betty's house to get it back, walked right in, but couldn't find it. What she did find, and took instead, was Betty's memoir entitled, What's a Nice Girl to Do? When Linda showed it to Dan, he told her, take it back. Linda had entered Betty's house without permission, which is what they filed complaints about Betty doing. Dan Broderick didn't want to forfeit the legal high ground. Turns out the court was looking for Betty and the list, too, and left a phone message. Betty had better get to the courthouse ASAP and return that stolen list. On her drive back home, Betty stopped at a gun store and bought a 357 five-shot Smith & Wesson. After the prescribed waiting period, Betty picked it up. Thereafter, it was almost always within reach, in her purse, even the pocket of her bathrobe. How many times over how many years had she threatened to kill Dan? told her friends, told her kids that. So often that maybe people stop thinking she could ever mean it. Here's attorney Rebecca Lack, Dan and Linda's good friend. He would get these phone calls. Somebody would call him from the shooting range for the San Diego Police Department. Betty wasn't afraid to say why she was there with target practice. And she would tell anybody. She would tell strangers. And so Dan would get these crazy phone calls that, hey, uh, do you know somebody named Betty Roderick? And she was at the San Diego PD firing range practicing shooting and said she was going to put a bullet in your head. Dan, too, had heard it so often, he didn't even appear to take it seriously. And he's like, no, she's never going to kill the Golden Goose. What's she going to live on if he's not paying her 
$16,000 a month. That's what he thought was his safety net. On Dan and Linda's wedding day, security men monitored Dan's home. A lot of people told Dan that he should wear a bulletproof vest for his wedding. Dan refused to wear a bulletproof vest, but he did wear the formal morning coat that Betty had so much hoped he'd wear at their wedding 20 years before. In my mind, I had no sense of fear because it just sounded too crazy. It, it was so over-the-top nuts. Helen Picard, the friend who testified at the murder trial that Betty was obsessed with money, volunteered to look after Betty. She worked out an arrangement with the wife of the judge who performed the ceremony. If Betty got away, Helen would alert her. Rebecca Lack was at that wedding and remembers the day with fondness. To me, there was no fear. And I didn't get the sense while I was there that everybody else was fearful either. I didn't have that sense at all. There might have been people, but it wasn't something that was being discussed. For 17 hours then, Helen stayed with Betty until Linda Colkina, the woman Betty scorned as the bimbo, the office slut, was the new Mrs. Daniel T. Broderick III. Linda would have her new name and live her new life for not quite seven months. In Dan's 1988 interview with The Reader, he said something that later came to sound like a calamitous prophecy, although Paul Kruger said he didn't think of it that way at the time. It didn't strike us at the time as being as foreboding as it was after. Dan said this about him and Betty. It's never going to be over for me. I know that. I'm resigned. It's not going to end until one of us is gone. On the next episode of It Was Simple, the Betty Broderick Murders. Betty was always going to take the stand in this case. There was no doubt about it. I tried to be perfect, absolutely flawlessly perfect for Dan Broderick. The news media was right when they said, you know, Linda was the forgotten person in this trial. There was never any question that Dan loved Linda. Never a doubt. That act is about as cold and deliberate and intentional as they come. Standing around the jury room holding hands when it came to a conclusion that brought us all to tears. I couldn't believe a mother could speak to her children that way. It made good sense to me. What made sense? Taking the gun so I could make them listen to me. It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders is written and reported by me, Pat Morrison. It's produced by the Los Angeles Times with support from LA Times Studios and Spoke Media. Our producers are Paige Heimson, Jenna Hannum, and Carson McCain. Our audio engineer is Will Short, and our editor is Steve Clow. We got production help from Kelly Kolf and Alicia Force. Our original music is composed by Will Short from Spoke Media. Our theme song is Better Be Watching by Haley Lynn and Kyle Devine, and our additional music came from Firstcom. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Clint Schaff, Jeff Glasser, and everyone who granted us access to their archives. It Was Simple is executive produced by Abby Fentress-Swanson for the LA Times, 
Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian for Spoke Media. I'm turning 42 years old and I've been put through this bull-